0: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. That was CNN Plus, The new
1: streaming service goes belly up just weeks after launch. Parent company Warner Brothers Discovery pulling the plug at the end of the month. How did CNN misjudge the market? How damaged is the brand? We go in depth. And what's the future for streaming generally as Netflix sees subscribers leave? We look at the wider lessons here in President Biden announcing new civilian and military aid for Ukraine. We assess how he's handling the response to the war.
0: We'll also speak with a woman in western Ukraine helping house displaced families and children. Signs emerging some people treated with COVID with the antiviral drug may be getting rebound symptoms. And new warnings going out about a possible insect apocalypse.
1: But we start with CNN Plus turning into a huge minus for the news giant. Joining us is Robert Thompson, director of the uh, uh, Blair Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Uh, Robert, thanks for being with us. So not since I think the Titanic sunk, has anything gone down so quickly? What happened?
2: No, this is uh, I mean, I've I've got. I don't know, bananas in my refrigerator that uh, started before CNN. (laughs) uh, Uh, Quibi, the famous crash and burn uh, streaming service, lasted eight months. Uh, CNN, I think, uh, closed less than a month into uh, its start. I don't know that we should read too much into this.
0: We but might it's a bad I, business model is.
2: in the way they did it as this standalone. Uh, the statement that's come out, the statement that's come out is as we become Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN will be stronger as part of WBD's streaming stati- uh, strategy, which envisions news as an important part of broader offerings: sports, entertainment, nonfiction, uh, and all the rest. So CNN isn't giving up by any means on uh, streaming. That's how my, so many people watch television now. It just isn't going to be in this standalone form that they launched and that they closed who was the audience for this because that was the question that was
0: asked early on and is now being asked today because if you're watching cnn you're watching cnn and they wanted to do like maybe kind of what fox nation is doing but it's a very different kind of viewer so the fox people are going to log in and watch fox nation but where who were these cnn plus people that they expected to get
2: Yes. Well, I guess the question of who was the audience they expected and hoped for and who was the audience have two different answers. Who was the audience? uh, Less than 10,000 people per day. uh, And CNN has 4,000 employees. So who was the audience? Not practically nobody. I think the expectation was going to be that this was going to become part of the menu of subscriptions that people had, along with Prime and Hulu and Netflix and all of the rest of it. And I think that was a very optimistic assumption. You're right, people are already getting to the tune of 775,000 viewers average a day on CNN. And I think a lot of those didn't feel the need to transfer over to this streaming. Plus the fact that this gets introduced not long after Peacock and HBO Max and all these others are joining with the old now legacy streaming services like Netflix and I think it's a lot harder to get people to add yet another in the case of CNN plus 599 for yet another streaming service unless it's got something on it that they absolutely have to see. So Fox Nation has that for its audience. CNN didn't. So how do
1: you interpret their news release, uh, CNN Plus, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, the parent company, uh, about how it's going to be integrated with the other things that are being offered, for example, like HBO Max? How do you see that shaping up?
2: Well, I don't know. And uh, given how CNN Plus was launched, it's kind of hard to predict. But there are a lot of properties in this WBD umbrella. And where CNN is going to get fit into that. I'm not even sure that they've got that completely worked out uh, at this point. Uh, and it's going to be a while before the smoke clears as to which of these streaming services end up. Uh, you know, surviving by the end of it. Even we've got breaking news, of course, about Netflix stocks down, their uh, subscriptions are lever- leveling off and even going down, expectations of losing 2 million subscribers in the second quarter. Uh, even Netflix, which seems like ye olden days legacy streaming service, uh, is, is, is still jockeying for where this audience is going to be and where all of these programming and content is going to end up.
0: Ye olden days. Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Pop Culture at Syracuse.
1: More on streaming in the wake of CNN Plus being pulled at the end of the month and Netflix. Shocking investors by announcing a fall in subscribers. We're joined now by Ian Shore, editor-at-large for tech news website CNET, or CNET, as most of us call it. So, Ian, Good save, huh? <laughs> Good save. Yeah, I know. I was reading it and I'm going, oh no! Oh, I know yeah. what this is. I know what that is. Yeah, uh, Ian. Uh, so uh, Netflix, uh, CNN Plus. Uh, you know, are we seeing a kind of uh, point at which there has to be a total reevaluation in the industry about what the next step is? Because some of the planning clearly isn't working out. Yeah,
3: I I think that the next couple of weeks are gonna be critical for that question. And the reason I say that is that we have other companies whose information we're gonna be getting, right? We still don't know, for example, how Disney Plus has been doing lately, or even HBO Max. And so I think part of what we need to get the fuller view of is how the streaming world is doing. But there are larger things that we can look at that tell us how, what's going on here, right? For example, one of the things about CNN Plus uh, that we've kind of learned from all the reporting that's come out since this news uh, kind of leaked out earlier today is that Discovery's head of their the, the head of Discovery didn't want to run this in the first place. If they'd been in charge before they merged with uh, with uh, CNN, they would not have even allowed it to happen. So, okay, fine, maybe that's a corporate thing. You. Look look at Netflix, you see that there is a bunch of competition that's making it harder for them to convince people to pay for subscriptions. You see that they raised their price and a lot of people left because of that. You see that the coronavirus kind of you know, easing off a little bit, right? People, at least with, the, uh, with people feeling more comfortable going outside, that means less people sitting around waiting for the next Tiger King installment or trying to figure out whether it is really cake or not. and so all of those things kind of it's a good show and so all that all these things add together to you know, it, yeah, it makes sense that this is happening, but also does it really mean that maybe the entire streaming world needs a
0: rethink? I did watch the cake show. The bowling ball looked like a bowling ball and they sliced into it, it's cake. I mean, but <laughs> but Tiger King 2, let's let's take that for a second. Wasn't very good. So isn't some no. of this just content that yeah, Netflix used to be a place where there was stuff you could you couldn't get anywhere else and and when they launched and Orange is and the New Black was a was a big groundbreaking kind of hit and they had some other shows and and then The Crown was huge. But everybody else has got good stuff now, too, and people are probably tired of having every single streaming service. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, and uh, by the way, we we cannot underestimate how disappointing Bridgerton season two was, right? But I, I will, <laughs> but I will say that the 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 reality of it is you hit really hard. Is that the the back catalog is a really important thing when you think of what Netflix has? They have focused all of their effort on building out unique shows, and it's been somewhat successful. You look at what we were just describing. But at the same time, they've now had new competitors come in, like Disney. They've got the entire back catalog of Disney. And by the way, they've got Star Wars and Marvel to boot. You've got uh, HBO with its enormous back catalog. And yeah, a lot of people look at this and they say, maybe I don't need to spend the money I was spending with Netflix Uh, By the way, one of the things I've always thought about is that one of the uh, people who's an executive in the industry, right? And and been the head of various uh, studios and whatnot told me once, he said, I think people are only gonna want to pay for maybe four subscriptions in their lives. And if I count the ones I'm paying for right now, I'm well above four. Hmm. And I bet that the minute that I decide the inflation is too much for me or I'm just getting cranky about what's on there, you can bet I'm gonna start whittling them down.
1: You know, what I find interesting, too, is that all these companies, whether it's Netflix or, or uh, CNN Plus, they spend a fortune on focus groups and research before they, they launch almost anything. How do they they screw up so badly?
3: Well, I think part of what's going on is that there is an amel- element of focus groups and stuff. But one of the things we all learn from Netflix is that sometimes it's about the leap of faith and then and then actually following through and seeing how people respond to it. You know, when Netflix first came out with their streaming product, it, back in the, in the Paleolithic era of 2007, <laughs> right? A lot of people said, oh, th- this isn't going to be a big deal. It didn't have that much in there. Everyone was doing DVD by mail. And it seemed obvious that this was just going to be a filler other product. And I think what's really important is seeing how Netflix was able to turn itself into one of the biggest players in Hollywood by really digging in quick on that. So in a lot of ways, a lot of people want that first mover advantage, and there aren't that many people charging for cable news on the internet. Now, we could argue, and I'm sure many people will today, whether that was even a good idea, but it, it, I, don't, I don't sit here and say that seems like they should have known this was coming. I think there's a lot of hope and pushing through. And even companies like Apple, who historically have not had good success making their own media, right? They make great technology, but they don't really have good success making media. They just won an Oscar. So hmm. clearly yeah, there is something to say for, for that jump of faith.
0: Ian Schur, editor-at-large for CNET. The president formally announcing $800 million more in military aid for Ukraine. He says Vladimir Putin will never be allowed to succeed. Ed O'Keefe, CBS News senior White House and political correspondent, is with us. Ed, thanks for being here. So two parts to this speech, right? First was, look, we're not going to yield. And second was pointedly thanking the American people for sticking with this because this White House is is acutely aware of of gas prices, inflation, and and how people are going to have to hold on for, for weeks or maybe or months more as this continues.
4: Yeah, and, you know, while there is general broad support to continue helping the Ukrainian people, notable that uh, a poll out uh, earlier this morning found that 54% of Americans think the president has been not tough enough in his response. Only 36% think his approach has been about right, which is, I think speaks to why he was a little more explicit today in saying, look, this is going to be a while. We appreciate the support the American people are giving. I'm asking Congress for more money. If they're on board with this, they got to give it as quick as they can. And and I've now exhausted all the authority I've been given uh, to spend several billion dollars to uh, assist uh, Ukraine. Everything from these old howitzer weapons, which are those kind of uh, you got to think back to World War II, and you think of those images hmm. of soldiers loading up these massive uh, massive. Uh, weaponry that you fire these rockets from almost like a like a gun on a tripod or on a wheel that's a very crude way of describing it to people who can't see it and um that's what ukraine needs right now is they fight what is now the most sort of traditional conventional land conflict uh in europe since world war ii
1: okay so the president has to go back to congress to get more money what's the appetite in congress for giving him the money
4: Unless something has changed over their two-week Easter recess, it should still be pretty plentiful. Uh, and and there's, there has been uh, a series of trips by Democrats and Republicans to Europe over the last two weeks, over this break, uh, members of the House and the Senate, both parties, going to try to better assess the situation. They're all coming back to town next week, and they're all going to come back with a series of ideas on what to do. But they're going to be looking to the White House for cues on what is needed, how much that would cost, and, and how quickly it needs to be done in the... In the belief of many lawmakers, it's just not being done fast enough. So the White House will say, well, okay, fine. That's the case. You cough up how much money I can spend, and we'll start going out and buying it and shipping it over to Ukraine. You will hear talk of possible legislation to give uh, Ukraine what's called a lend-lease agreement, or essentially a fast-track authority to get stuff to Ukraine, whatever it may be, as fast as possible. There are some in Congress who think it's necessary, others who say it's window dressing, and that any delays are being caused by the mere difficulty of figuring out where in the world is certain military equipment that the Ukrainians are equipped to use, or how quickly can other things that they may need that we have access to or the ability to buy can be made and then shipped safely over to that part of the world. So you're running into a sort of unique supply chain or logistical issue, much like the supply chain or logistical issues we all face these days but with very specific equipment and making sure, frankly, that the Ukrainians know how to use it all once it gets there.
0: You were telling us the polling, the support for what he's doing, but also not strong enough. Given the rest of the agenda, though, and what's stalled and the economic climate, is Ukraine the one spot where, where this administration is polling well right now? I mean, it's it's a tough place to be in with the midterms getting closer and closer.
4: And the general belief of is he, is, he how do you approve, uh, you know, it depends on which server you're looking at. He's not seeing overwhelming support, and I think part of the reason is because people just think it needs to be done faster. But remember, the next biggest thing the U.S. could do would be sending in U.S. military personnel, and there's no support for that. So he's got to go out every day or at least once a week like he did today and and sort of lay out, here's what we're doing, here's what I'm asking for, here's what's arrived, here's the phone call I had today with this Ukrainian official or that one. Um, to try to demonstrate to people and make sure it breaks through somehow that he's doing what he can absent sending in U.S. forces. But beyond that, he's struggling on measures of the economy, immigration, dealing with inflation, crime. Uh, His his numbers are completely underwater at this point, really only about, depending on, again, the survey, somewhere in the 30s, somewhere in the low 40s of support. White House looks at that, kind of says, look, it's the spring of an election year. We're not as panicked about that, as we will be, say, by July, August, September, when early voting begins and when people really start to make up their minds. And they can see that, you know, the national mood is just dour right now, whether it's because of high prices, whether it's because of the afterglow of the pandemic, whether it's just the incredible partisan nature of our society now and the fact that people just take it out on whoever is in charge. And given the traditional history that a party in power in the White House usually loses seats, in their first midterm election. You, know, you look at, uh, at the way things are being forecasted right now, that's that that's what would happen. But, you know, it's only late April. There's plenty of time between now and election day for things to turn around, and that's the optimism the White House will at least publicly continue to present.
0: All right, Ed O'Keefe, CBS News Senior White House and political correspondent. Ed, thanks. The war in Ukraine has now created more than five million refugees and many more Ukrainians forced from their homes to move to other parts of the country. We've spoken with Patricia before, a business owner in Kyiv, who's now in the western part of Ukraine, Lviv, uh, helping displaced families. She's back with us now. Patricia, thank you for speaking with us again. I think last time was maybe about a month ago. Can you give us a sense of what things have been like for you, at least over the last couple of weeks or so?
5: So I would say that three and a half weeks ago, where there was the first kind of notable air attack on Vif uh, with the missiles. And uh, as you know, about, I guess it was about a week. Yeah, it was a week ago. There was another air attack with five missiles in Lviv, where I'm relocated. So that's in terms of, let's say, direct assault on, on the city where I'm living. And otherwise, we are with a Ukrainian education platform where John and I, my husband, John, who's from the U.S., Um, and I have been volunteering since the first day of the war, we have by now, it's day 57 of the war, and we put all our efforts in fundraising and other activities to attend to all the very, very urgent humanitarian needs for the IDPs, internally displaced persons, uh, mostly women and children. So one arm of the organization is continuing with humanitarian aid, mostly food and medication, toys uh, and, and hygiene and and, uh, and tempers. Uh, we are uh, now, another arm that we're constituting is moving towards residences for IDP. So the idea is to transform as quickly as possible uh, different types of buildings that the different localities are ready to turn over for renovations and semi-temporary, let's say, family units. This is for the women and the children to leave their shelters, which are not long-term or even short-term living conditions, and to be able to at least relive in, in, in their own units, establish their own uh, routines and schedules. Let, this, let me stop
1: you for a second. Uh, how yeah. many, uh, because we keep hearing about these vast yeah. numbers uh, of people who Million. have been displaced, right? uh, yeah. and, and many children in particular, right? So, uh, what do you do for those people who not only are out of homes, but many of them, as you know, don't have any ready source of income? I mean, you know, you can help ten people, twenty people. How do you help millions? No,
5: it's thousands. It's well, we're not going to help. We we ourselves are not going to help millions. I wish we could, (laughs) but we are obviously not the only ones in this. There are many, many. Uh, a different, you know, either uh, uh, organizations working, urbanists, architects, and we're working with architects and, and urbanists to develop full communities and not ghettos. Well, I mean, this is what the fundraising about uh, is about. So this is why we also, uh, so we, 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 we have humanitarian aid coming in from different uh, local and international organizations. Uh, We have a lot of capabilities here, which is another reason why we try to relocate people, because we have doctors, we have psychologists, we have teachers, um, we have sports teachers, and all of these people, uh, some of them are internally displaced, some of them are are voluntary. But uh, these people um, uh, receive a very minimal now from the government uh, stipend uh, that they can afford for now. Because the budget is challenged by the war effort, uh, so uh, the whole idea is is to we have, for example, free food. Let's say stores in the buildings in each building, so that people can cook their own foods, come and get the foods in these stores. We need to keep that going until until people work and start being able to take on some of those costs themselves.
0: When you're doing the work, is it you're so busy mm-hmm. every day, do you have time to stop and think about what's happening, or does it kind of wash over you when you get back to where you're staying at night? I imagine it's emotional mm-hmm. finding these people places to, to to stay, and you're happy to do it, but then at the same time, you've got to think these, these poor kids and, and these women and children, so far from where they're supposed to be living.
5: Well, listen, we, we meet uh, those kids, we meet those people, and... Um, Listen, we, every one of us is different, and every one of us deals with it different, but to stay effective uh, long-term, and this will be long-term, they're difficult moments, and we have to deal with them. I mean, I, I was thinking of people I know, uh, people that I know that would could be these people. So, yes, it's difficult, but at the same time, the mission is to do this work, and so we just have to deal with, with the horror that we face and and try to make it try to provide you know good living conditions temporarily or permanently that's what we do that's what we have to do
0: you're doing incredible work so, pa- patricia thank you so much for talking to us
5: we try thanks to your the support of all your listeners and yours it's important that people hear what's happening and and support us
1: okay thank you very much and we will uh, hopefully check in with her again because uh, She's really doing a lot of good work there in Ukraine, and, and we do hope that she stays well. Well, you no doubt notice that the digits keep going down a bit at your local gas station. As Pump prices have now fallen for 24 straight days. And there are predictions that we may see inflation finally fall for us here in California from the current record high of 8.5 percent. With us now is Mark Schneep, who is director of the California Economic Forecast based in Santa Barbara. Mark, thanks for being with us. So uh, I guess people always presume that inflation, inflationary prices other than gas, which tends to be localized, is something that, if it goes up or down, is going to happen at a national level. Can we have in the state itself a a decrease in inflation, even if perhaps it's going up elsewhere?
6: Oh, not likely. Uh, You you, you could have dissimilar rates of inflation, but all boats kind of rise with the tide. So, no, uh, you know, you're not going to see California go in a divergent direction from the U.S., so don't expect that uh, to occur.
0: What is your forecast for us uh, as a whole? Then have we reached this this peak inflation that some are talking about, or do we still have a ways to go?
6: I think we have a ways to go. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to have to report that, <laughs> but I'm just the messenger. You know, I uh, it, it is the case that uh, where we are, we're at eight eight and a half percent, and that also is in the L.A. area as well, L.A. Basin. So uh, we're likely to see elevated rates for the rest of this year. We'll, do I think that they will come down? Yes, but it'll be a slow, gradual move. And I think 2023 is going to be a better year for inflation that we're going to see this year.
1: I was going to say, we still have a ways to go for 2022 until we get to 20. 20- 23 th- those people though who are making these predictions as we mentioned going into you uh, that maybe inflation is is finally going to fall do you understand where they're coming from What what is it that they're looking at that that gives them that that sense do you know
6: well i think much of it is wishful thinking uh for one thing i think that uh some reason they believe that oil prices uh you know may be falling here uh because uh maybe the 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 war effort is going to start winding down but you know even even then it's not necessarily the war effort that has caused the spike in oil prices i mean a little bit of that was attributed to uh the war but not but uh, most of it is attributed to the current administration's energy policy uh and then they also see the supply debacles that we're having worldwide and, and, and most uh, clearly at the ports they look to see they seem to see think that those are going to be resolving soon and I don't think that that is something that that uh, you're going to see undone very quickly so uh, uh, those are the, those are the things in general I think the, the biggest issue with with inflation right now is all the massive spending that we've had how are we going to unwind that? That's going to be in the system for quite some time. That's why inflation is going to be with us for at least the rest of this year.
0: Was there just way too much money pumped into the economy over the course of the last two years that, that really helped to lead us here? Although, you know, the money helped a lot of people, but also here we are.
6: Well, yes, it's been unprecedented. and I know that term has been used a lot, but, you know, give me another word and that tops that. Uh, we have the two trillion dollars CARES act that was in March of 2020 and then we followed up that with the 1.9 trillion dollar you know American rescue plan and then Congress spent another 1.2 trillion on the infrastructure plan and then Congress just in March had another spending plan for uh, uh climate change and a variety of other things of 1.5 trillion so when you add all of those things up that's seven that's nearly 7 trillion dollars in the last what Two years exactly. Did we need all that in the system? Probably not. And 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 now you know the chickens are coming home to roost with this higher inflation. You can't really have the kind of inflation we're seeing right now without having this massive spending that's also accommodated by the Fed printing money.
1: And yet, of course, as you know, uh, the Fed is is trying to uh, curtail the. Uh... Uh, inflationary trend, but they do run the risk, do they not, of creating a recession? They've done it before. It's a
6: balancing act. There is no doubt. But you know what? I don't think that they're being aggressive enough. The scheduled interest rate hikes that they have programmed for the rest of the year, I don't think are going to be really enough. I think it's too little and and too late. So uh, I think we're going to need to see. but but you're right, you bring up an interesting point. if they if they are much more aggressive and hostile about this, then uh, then we risk uh, you know, a fallout in the stock market and the major problems in the housing and maybe the other interest rate sensitive markets. So that that is a, a, an issue that we have to grapple with.
0: We love a balance beam, don't we? <laughs> Just trying to, to get it exactly. Yeah. Right. How, do, how are consumers? feeling and spending right now because one way to to dial a lot of this back is to buy less stuff but people are still out there buying stuff
6: people are still buying stuff they they've got a lot of money that uh left over from all the stimulus payments all the helicopter money that (laughs) came in furthermore uh you know we had a, a very fast rebound in employment and everybody that really wants to work right now is working, and they're getting big raises too. So household income really hasn't gone down. It's gone way up now. So people have a lot of disposable income, and they are spending. And, uh, and so that's probably not going to go away, uh, even if you tell them to.
0: Mark Schneep, director of the California Economic Forecast, based in Santa Barbara. Medical researchers in Boston say there are signs some people with COVID who were treated with a new antiviral drug did get better, but then showed rebound symptoms. With us now, Dr. Paul Sachs, head of the Infectious Disease Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor at Harvard Medical School. Doctor, thanks for being here. Uh, Hang on just a second, because first, uh, we're going to go to you, Charles, my co-host. Because you took Paxlovid.
1: Yes, that's the Pfizer one last week. And so we far, about it. Yep. so
0: good, as we said earlier, right? Yes,
1: I, I, I can speak Norwegian now, which I never <laughs> did before, but <laughs> but no, I'm, 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 I'm fine. But, but, but the question is, doctor, uh, is this just kind of one of those quirks that you see some people for whom, you know, no drug works 100% for 100% of the people, right? Is that what we're seeing? or Is there something deeper going on here, do you think?
7: Well, this was something that was actually in the clinical trial. There were people who received Paxlovid, responded to it, and then had a rebound in their symptoms and the virus. But the information was actually very deeply buried in the FDA report. And so people maybe weren't aware of it. And so the fact that it's now happening in the community, some people are very startled. One thing that's very important to mention is that it does not appear that, at least in the cases that have been studied so far, that the virus has become resistant to Paxlovid. So that suggests that maybe some people should be treated for longer, although right now the five day course is typically fine.
0: And not happening at super high rates either. I mean, this drug is still really, really effective.
7: This drug is very effective and it's underutilized. And so I want to stress to people out there who might have risk factors for severe COVID that they should absolutely contact their doctors or their nurses or whoever their practitioner is and get a prescription for this and get it quickly. It does work best if it's given within the first days after the onset of symptoms, and it's been shown in people who are at high risk that it reduces the likelihood of requiring hospitalization or dying.
1: Does it make a difference based on the clinical study whether uh, somebody was or wasn't vaccinated and or boosted? For example, I was boosted twice, but uh, and I had a pretty mild case of, of COVID at that, but my doctor wanted me to take it anyway, so I did. But is there any indication that it makes a difference whether or not one is vaccinated or not vaccinated?
7: Right now, we have limited information about how well the drug works in vaccinated people as far as preventing hospitalization and death. Remember, the vaccines are already doing a good job at that. What really I I wonder about is whether Paxlovid will make people less contagious to others. Uh, The viral load results suggest that it would. But one important thing about these anecdotes that people rebound is that if you get treated with Paxlovid and then you start to recover and you're feeling fine and your home test is negative, and then a few days after stopping the Paxlovid, you start getting symptoms again. Don't think it's a different virus. It's probably actually still COVID-19. Take another test. And then if the test is positive, consider yourself contagious until the test is negative.
0: Could it be uh, like a true bounce back that there was some reserve you didn't knock it all out? Or can we be also be talking about really quick reinfection if that could even happen?
7: Well, that's a good question. Uh, it appears from most of the cases that have been studied so far that it is not reinfection. And what you'll hear from patients who have had this is that they feel like reinfection is, is impossible because they've been isolating. Uh, I also want to say that the molecular studies support their claim. Uh, it does appear to be the same virus. And I think for some people, um, five days may not be enough. But I, I still, I don't want people to feel like this drug is, is Is not working. It is working. But they should also, if this happens, understand what's going on.
1: I mean, is it theoretically possible or is it possible that the drug is somehow blunting any uh, antibodies or immunity that somebody has gotten either from the vaccines or from the natural infection? And that's why it's coming back?
7: That's a, a one hypothesis. Uh, I initially thought that perhaps you need to see a certain amount of the virus to have a strong enough immune response to clear it. I, that right now is theoretical, and all of these studies on the immune response really are, are um, difficult. It's difficult to prove. Uh, right now, what, what I would just say is, uh, by and large, this drug works very well. Uh, it's It's very safe. A lot of people report that they start feeling better really quickly after starting taking it, which is great. And it uh, should be more broadly used. You know, if right now there are high risk people, I've heard anecdotes of, for example, 90 year olds who have not been prescribed the drug because people just weren't aware. And, and in that population who are at risk of the most severe COVID-19, they definitely should get it.
0: Where are we with the other pill? That was Merckx, right?
7: Yeah, there's a drug called monopiravir. Uh, it appeared in its clinical trial that it wasn't quite as effective. So it was in the range of a 30% reduction in hospitalization or death versus about 90% for Paxlovid. So it is available and it's an alternative. Uh, until we have more data that's more favorable, I would favor Paxlovid over this if possible. There's another treatment that's a long name, Bebtilovumab, which is a monoclonal antibody. That's the only one that's still active against this form of Omicron. And that's, that's another thing that people could get, but it does require an intravenous infusion.
1: Is there anything in the pipeline soon that would perhaps, in your mind, be better than any of these?
7: Um, there are other drugs being studied. There are drugs that are similar to Paxlovid. At least two of them I'm aware of that um, work in very similar ways that might be just as if not more effective and have fewer drug interactions, because actually that's one of the big problems with Paxlovid. is some people can't take it because they're taking other medications and it's a dangerous side effect to take them together. Um, There's also something called interferon lambda, which is a single shot, almost like an insulin shot, that appears quite effective too. It'd be much easier to give than these monoclonal antibodies, which require an IV. So so for now, though, this is the best we have. Uh, and for the people who meet the criteria under the emergency use authorization for Paxlovid, this is what I'd recommend.
0: Dr. Paul Sachs, head of Infectious Disease Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital and professor at Harvard Men.
1: Well, in the interest of uh, transparency, I've, I have to admit, I've never met an insect that I liked. But nonetheless, new research is out from the U.K. amplifying warnings about a possible insect apocalypse and the damage it may do to the ecosystems that we all rely upon. Joining us now is entomologist David Wagner from the University of Connecticut, who has already said all kinds of insects are at risk for death by a thousand cuts. Thanks for being uh, with us. So uh, my dislike of insects aside, uh, this is a big problem, is it not?
8: It's a huge problem. You know, insects are one of those things where some people can't live with them, but you can also not live without them. They're they're so important. They're actually maybe like the hamburger of ecosystems. They tether together everything that we love. And, uh, and, you know, if you don't have insects, we don't even have birds. So maybe 95% of all birds uh, require insects. But what people really care about is food. And they're quintessential to pollinating so many of our crops and Virtually 80, 90% of all the wildflowers on the planet are are pollinated by bugs. So yet we have to have them. And so their decline, particularly at the rates we're seeing, is really alarming.
0: How much of our diet is dependent on these guys?
8: Well, uh, if you like fruit, nuts, and a a number of vegetables, uh, quintessential. So a large fraction of all the food that people eat uh, are pollinated by insects. Uh, Of course, we eat grains, and certain vegetables don't require insects. But... I I don't know. Uh, Insects play a a major role. I'd say uh, maybe a quarter or a third of the diets that we have, the food on the table, is provided by insects or at least indirectly by their pollination services.
1: So what's killing them off?
8: Everything. That's by a thousand cuts. But, you know, through time, it's usually been land use change. There's 7.9 billion people on the planet right now, and that's not a, a lot of room for nature. And so it's the destruction of natural habitats. But What's taking center stage now, and I think what's really worrying biologists and farmers and, and people worry about environmental justice and feeding the planet, is climate change in that it's taking over and may be the number one bad actor at center stage. But insects suffer from light pollution, uh, pesticides and and all the other things that are tearing apart the fabric of life across the
0: planet. Do the problems make each other worse? So big, you know, single crop agriculture changing the land use and then climate change and put those two together and a whole bunch of other factors. And then it's just like we're rolling down the mountain and, and gathering steam.
8: Well, I think we're rolling down the mountain and gathering steam. And so there's probably not a place on the planet now that isn't affected by mankind. So even if we move away from Los Angeles and we start to go into California's wildlands, we're gonna have things like nitrogen pollution coming down from burning fossil fuels. We're changing the temperature. And what I think is really important for Californians and, and insects more generally, is actually changing the not this one degree temperature, it's not the global warming that we hear about and read about, I think what we're really worried about or should be worried about is changing precipitation patterns, changing rainfall patterns and snowfall in the mountains, because that delivers all the water over the summer, right? So it's actually the drought, not the one degree temperature that's changing fire regimes and and drying up uh, the habitats that these animals need.
1: I want to ask you about what individuals can do, uh, but Mike uh, here is like—he's uh, got this thing in his in his hand. He's—it turns out he's like an insect's best friend.
0: It is—it's my <laughs> keychain, and it's—it's yeah. it's called Reviva Bee, and it's a little little canister, just tiny little cylinder, and it's got like a little bit of like syrup in there syrup. And so if you see a bee that's yes. like looking thirsty and about to die yeah you can just put this next to him and he'll drink yeah. it and get up and fly away and go work on more flowers seriously well,
8: yes I, I i hope it works um <laughs> you know, plan, I, I think we'd get a lot more mileage out of you know planting a more, more flowers in our gardens in our backyards maybe taking some of that lawn and returning it to a as aeroscape or wildscape, but certainly butterfly gardens are really popular right now, especially with uh, educators and kids and people that uh, perhaps aren't traveling as much as they get older. But uh, the gardening is one way to really restore nature. And if you restore, uh, you know, your backyard for bugs, you're actually building habitat for birds and, and you're gonna hear more bird song every year. So there's a lot that individuals can do, but voting and policy changes are really important. And I can tell you from an East Coaster that, Californians and their voting and uh, some of their environmental policies are doing tremendous amounts of good uh, uh, across uh, being a model a model nation and often to our a model state driving national legislation. So there's any uh, any numbers of things. Get agencies get out there into nature and, and just support it and appreciate it.
1: Why is it that some people just don't like insects? I mean, you know, I just don't like them. I mean, you know, I I, I don't wish you think I don't, they're going to come after I, you. I, no, no, I don't wish them ill, but I just don't like them. It's your culture.
8: It's where you were grown up and how you were grown up. Insects are deeply loved in many Asian countries. It's in their art, in their poetry, uh, often even in their food and that sort of thing. So I would say that the U.S. is really at one end of a continuum or a spectrum with most countries of the world having a deeper appreciation for insects, but they're Uh, It's actually a pastime to study insects uh, by many gentry and and clergy and and military and and through many European nations. uh, But by the time we get to Asia, uh, they're really a part of the culture. And they're kept as pets and sold in stores and that sort of thing as as things you can bring home.
0: Hmm. Entomologist David Wagner, University of Connecticut. I stand by my Reviva Bee, even if you think it's dumb.